As I was worshiping the Lord, it just, man, I feel like he's so present right now. And uh, it's a beautiful thing, right? There's some people have been staying away. Some of you are hurting right now. There's some people in this room that feel guilt and shame going through tough seasons and struggling. But you're here today. And that's where you, this is where you belong. The Lord loves you. We love you. We're glad you're here. You don't need to pull away from your family when you're in those dark times. Remember that. There's a place here for you. So as we talked about and as I shared earlier, we... we know that Advent began last week. And so the word Advent actually means arrival. And what Advent season is, is essentially the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ. Pastor Sam shared a great message last week about the waiting that took place throughout biblical times, you know, and how waiting is a necessary discipline for God's people. And there's so many stories of waiting throughout the Bible, right? So I just want to expound a little today on the purpose of that waiting. I think a lot of times we know that waiting and that discipline need to be cultivated and nurtured in us, but there's also something that God is doing. There's purpose and there's meaning in the waiting. Pastor Sam expressed his disdain for waiting, right? And I'm sure some of us can relate. Anybody here love to wait? Whether it's payday, vacation, a relationship, for a season to end, for one to begin, we're always in a rush. We're always, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Right? So from a personal standpoint, I can look back now and I can see how the waiting was where God did his greatest work in me personally. Right? He taught me disciplines that I didn't even know I needed. Right? He showed me things about myself that I didn't even realize I struggled with so badly. He continues to do that. But it's amazing how when we get into those places where we're almost forced to wait, that we see and we are, things are revealed to us in a new and a fresh way, and we're able to sort of just be with God. We often look at the outcome of where we want to be as the reward, don't we? Right, But it's often the waiting process that is actually the greater reward in itself. That's where all the fruit is grown. That's where all the change and transformation takes place. And the end result is usually quick. It's a moment maybe sometimes. But man, that waiting process. There's actually something happening while nothing is happening. Think about that. God uses waiting to change us, right? Our problem, especially here in the Western culture, is that we want what we want, and we want it now, right? We were watching Willy Wonka the other day, the original, of course. Second one is just not even... (sighs) They always have to ruin good things, don't they? But we were watching it with my son and my grandson and my daughter and her fiancé, and there's this character in the movie... If you've seen it, her name is Veruca. You know, and and, uh, Veruca is this spoiled, annoying girl who wants everything 
And she wants it now. I want a goose that lays golden eggs too, daddy. Right? She even breaks into song about the whole thing. And what does dad do? Dad breaks out the checkbook and goes, all right, Wonka, how much? Right? Am I doing that well? You know, immediately, whatever she wants, when she wants it, dad comes along and just gives it to her and gratifies her. And what does that produce? A spoiled brat. Even the Oompa Loompas sing about it. Right? Don't even make me go there. (laughs) Oompa Loompa. (laughs) What do you get? Right? So, sorry, I get carried away. So the point is, is God knows what we need and when we need it. Unlike, you know, this instant gratification that Veruca's father was providing her that was creating in her this horrible person. Right? He's in the waiting church. I want you to look at the person next to you, and I want you to say, he's in the waiting. See, when we read stories like the one in John 5 of the man at the pools of Bethesda, we see that, you know, he was sick for 38 years. 38 years. Every day he sat by that pool waiting for this ripple of water in hopes that he would be the first one to touch it. That's all he did all day, every day. He sat in this place and he had this one thing on his mind and this is what he thought was going to solve all his problems. And ironically, after all that time waiting in that place to be the first to touch the water, it wasn't even that water or that place that healed him. Jesus met him in his waiting, and he said, get up, take your mat, and walk. And I love that. I love that sentiment. You know, I think about my own story. I think about how I, for years and years, I laid in death and sickness, you know, thinking I had all the answers. I knew what was going to fix me or fulfill me or heal me or grow me, right? Looking at all the things I knew and I could see, and then Jesus met me in there. And you know, I love it. He says, take your mat and walk. He doesn't just say, get up and go. You know, there's this little detail. Take your mat with you. So people can see who you were. So people can see the power of God in your life. That's your testimony. You were once crippled. You were once stuck in this place. And now you walk holding the very mat you spent 38 years on. How many times are we sitting in our sickness waiting for something to happen, something we want or expect to happen that we think is going to just solve it all, and it doesn't? Same with the woman with the issue of blood that we read about in Luke chapter 8 and Mark chapter 5, right? She suffered for 12 years, it said. She spent all her money on doctors and seeking treatment and healing, but to no avail. Nothing happened. She got more and more miserable. And what happens is is she hears about this Jesus. And he happens to be passing by one day. And she fights through the crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed, she says. This is the faith. This is what she knows. This is what she thinks in this moment. And she is. She's healed. Jesus feels the power drain from him, it says. And he looks back. Who touched my garment? We need to remember that in that culture at that time, a Jewish woman with blood was considered unclean, right? She couldn't worship at the temple. 
She couldn't be amongst her peers. She couldn't be around anybody. And anyone who touched her would also become unclean. So she was ostracized, right? She was separated and she was stuck alone, suffering for 12 years. 12 years, church. She needed to come to the end of herself financially, physically, and mentally to finally see that she needed Jesus. Can anyone relate? See, in an instant, Jesus can do what nobody or nothing else can do. That's what I've learned. In a moment. Right? We can spend our whole lives focusing and striving for the wrong things, thinking these are good. And they might not be inherently bad things. They might have, you might have this right intention, so to speak. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good employee. I want to provide well for my family. I want to be the greatest mom there ever was. And the, the problem is, is that we think that we're going to find our fulfillment in these things. But these are actually a byproduct when you become what Christ has called and created you to be. And so instead of just trying to fix the thing that's not right in your life, it's, it's all about going to the well and drinking deeply so that he can complete that work internally and you can become the person that he called you to be. The problem is, is we hate waiting. We want shortcuts. And just like these two examples, we look for what we think will work and we invest all our time, money, and resources in these things only to come up short and sometimes even worse off than when we begin. So what can we learn through our waiting? Right? What does God do in these seasons? How does he use these seasons to grow, mature, and prepare us? That's what we need to look at. Here's what I think. Waiting exposes our idols, and it throws a wrench into our coping mechanisms. It brings us to the end of what we can control, and it forces us to cry out to God. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a verse that people, or, or, or something, this mantra that people quote often, and I'm sure many of you have or still do, and, I, and I'm going to challenge it today. It's not in the Bible. It actually contradicts the Bible to some degree. God will never give me more than I can handle. It's something we say to encourage ourselves. It's something we say to say, I can do this. But the problem with that mentality and that perspective is it's not at all how God uses hardship in our lives. He actually brings us to the very end of ourselves beyond what we can handle. And many of us would have never cried out to him. Many of us would have never turned to Jesus had we been able to handle it. That's what this is all about. That's what this process, this waiting process is all about. Is learning how to trust Jesus, to give it all over to him. Right, Pastor Brian says it all the time. We don't surrender to be done, we surrender to begin. And that's the beginning of that new life. And so God, he doesn't waste our waiting. He uses it to conform us to the image of his son. That's what the scriptures say. 
And until we get out of the way and we stop trying to handle everything, he can't really do that in us. We're in a holding pattern. We're hardened clay. We're on the shelf. It's when we start to admit our deficiencies and our weaknesses, allowing God into those places, allowing other people into those places with us, that we actually begin to see fruitful life. So what does waiting look like for a Christian? What does that look like for us, those who are in Christ? Piper says it's staying at your appointed place while God says stay, or it's going at his appointed pace when God says go. I like that. I also like what the psalmist write. Psalm 46, 10, it says, for we need to be still or we need to cease striving or stop striving and allow God to be God. Let God be God in your life. Be still. Who has a hard time being still? Right? Think about my son. It's like he's watching TV and his whole body's, his head stuff. And you're like, how does this kid ever shut off? That's how we are. Moses tells his people the same thing in Exodus chapter 14. They've just been let out of Egypt, 420 years of slavery, right? Totally held captive by the Egyptians who, who abused them, treated them horribly. And, and Moses finally, after all these plagues and miracles, you know, he's got these people and they're like, all right, we'll trust you, we go. And they get to the sea and their back's against the wall. And the first thing they do is go, oh no, we're gonna die. And and Moses just looks at him in verse 14 and he just says, you need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. Stop trying to fight the battle that you can't win. Do what you can and give the rest to God. Moses turns around, he slams his stake into the water and the seas part and they walk through unscathed and then it swallows up Pharaoh and his armies. That's what it means to trust God. That's what it looks like. And sometimes we're so afraid of what might happen. We're so fearful of things not going our way or looking the way we want them to or the end result being different than what we desire. And so what we do is we try to meddle and we start to tell God how it should look or we start to push things. Oh, you know, if only so-and-so would go to church more. Oh, I'm going to keep calling. I'm going to keep bugging. And it's like, yeah, that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, why do you want that? Are you trying to conform this person? We need to allow God into our process. We need to allow him to do what he does. See, among the great stories of waiting in scripture, there's one that stands out to me the most. It's the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Right, and I've preached on the life of Joseph before, and I've heard quite a few messages drawn from his life, but God has led me back here once again as I've been reading and looking at this whole waiting process. I blame Sam. You know, he started it last week, and ever since, I've just been stuck on this waiting process. And I think about all the things going on in my life right now. I think about all of the stuff that's changing or, or uncertain, and I realize, like, I have zero control of most of it. But I do have control in how I handle it. I do have control in what I give to God and how I allow him to work in me through all of this. And so I realize how limited I am. I realize that, you know, 
Everything that's good in me, anything, or where I'm at at this point in my life is because God got a hold of me and has done an amazing work. And I think about, man, I could have never accomplished half of this. And so I have to keep trusting him and remembering how he works in the waiting. This is probably going to be a two-part series since there's so much material to cover. But I'm going to jump through chapters 37 and 50 in, in, through 50 in, in Genesis just to bring everyone up to speed and to see how far we get in that today, okay? So what we know is that Joseph is one of 12 boys, right? He's the second youngest to his father Jacob, now known as Israel, and he was, it says, Jacob's favorite. Oof. Imagine that, you have 12 boys and you go, but you, you're my favorite. I like you the best. And there were no secrets. It wasn't like, you know, hey, you're my favorite. It was almost like, no, oh, Joseph's here, my favorite son. I'm going to make him a multicolored jacket, and, and he can wear that so everybody knows he's my favorite. <laughs> that must have went over well with the other 11, right? We see in verse 4 right away, Joseph's brothers hated him. <laughs> On top of that, Joseph has a couple of dreams about his family bowing down before him. Now, it turns out in the end that Joseph was a, a pretty wise man, and we're going to see that. But at this stage in his life, about 17 years old, he wasn't too smart at all. He was your typical 17-year-old, I think. I was 17 once. Most of you in here were 17 once. And I thought I knew it all at that point, too. Anybody else? Yeah, fair to say? You look at yourself now and you're like, oh, what a fool I was, right? So he gets a little grace because we've all been there. But what kills me is that it says that after he shared the first dream, they hated him even more. So they already hated him. He shares this dream. They hate him even more. And I don't know about you, but at that point, if I had 11 brothers hating me, I might be able to sense a little bit of tension, maybe chill out a little bit. Shut my mouth, you know, but not Joseph. He goes on to tell them about the second dream, and at this point, this is when the scriptures say, it made them jealous, and they devised a plan to take Joseph out of the picture. Now, I have a younger brother. He was very annoying when we were kids. In fact, he's still annoying. And I'm sure I've even said or felt some pretty ugly things, but this is way beyond noogies and giving wet willies to my germophobic little brother. In verse 18 of chapter 37, it says, they plotted against him to put him to death. Oof. Is this over a coat? Is this over a dream, a couple of dreams? And the plan was they were going to kill him and throw him in this pit, and then they were going to claim that a wild animal did it. And however, thankfully, big brother Reuben steps in. He says, all right, let's not take his life, right? Because this is diplomatic, Reuben. What a nice guy. Let's just throw him in the pit. <laughs> let's not lay any hands on him. We don't want his blood on our hands, so we're just going to throw him in the pit. And then maybe he'll be restored to his dad after that. Maybe that'll teach him a lesson or something. And what do they do? Well, what any other good brothers would do. They have lunch while they wait for their brother sitting at the bottom of this pit. And as they're having lunch, a group of Ishmaelites are passing by, right? 
And what does Judah say? Judah's got this great idea. He says, hey, I have an idea. Let's sell our little brother to those people. Nobody balks at that idea, by the way. Nobody says, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. Uh, you know, he is our brother, and those are not our people. They are Ishmaelites. And uh, no. What do they do? They take 20 shekels of silver, and off goes Joseph to Egypt, and his brothers throw some goat's blood on that pretty little coat, and they bring it back to his father, Jacob, so he'll think Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Wow. Talk about some sibling rivalry, right? Might make some of you feel a little better about the crazy people in your family. But moving on. You're going to notice that there's a lot of similarity here between Joseph and Jesus. He's the object of his father's special love. Right? He had promises of divine exaltation. He was mocked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe and delivered up to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused, and he was faithful amidst temptation. And eventually what would happen is that he would rise up and be exalted among all nations. We see how God has been foreshadowing the coming of Christ long before the incarnation. And this is what God's sovereignty looks like. God is in everything. Continuing on, we see that Joseph gets to Egypt and he's sold to a man named Potiphar who is a high-ranking officer in the Pharaoh's guard. So here's Joseph. He's been thrown in a pit by his brothers. They faked his death. They sold him off to slavery. Now he's sold to a man named Potiphar. And you see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 39... I think it's the second verse or fourth verse, and it says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Doesn't that seem a little out of context? I mean, how would we look in these situations if your family threw you in a hole and sold you to a bunch of people for 20 bucks? And now you're owned by this guy who's, you know, an Ishmaelite. These people are Gentiles, and now he's living in this guy's home, and it says... The Lord's with him, and he became successful. Huh? It, it almost doesn't make sense, right? It's very interesting. But most would assume in a situation like this that, that Joseph's in, that, he, that God had deserted him. Where are you, God? How would you allow this to happen to me? But here we are. See, we tend to measure God's presence in our lives by how things are going for us personally, but this story here and many others like it in the Bible, clearly show us something contrary to that perspective. So because of this favor from God, Potiphar, he decided to capitalize on this, and he puts Joseph in charge of everything. Potiphar sees that whatever Joseph touches turns to gold, so to speak. Right? Everything prospers. And so he says, aha, this guy can be in charge of everything. I'll let him oversee my house, my servants, everything. That way I can just do what Potiphar does. Great thing, right, for Joseph? Wrong. <laughs> we run into another snafu here. Because he's, I guess, a swell looker, Joseph has caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. 
And she's all about Joseph, but Joseph is a righteous man and he wants nothing to do with her. And so she tries and she tries, but Joseph is just not having it. So one day she decides to get a little more aggressive and she grabs him by his garments. And Joseph slips right out of his clothes and he just makes a run for it. Oh, Joseph. Potiphar's wife isn't having that, so she accuses him of rape. And then this is when Joseph is now sent to prison. It worsens. See, again, we read at the end of Genesis 39, though, it says, the Lord was with Joseph, and whatever he did, he made it prosper. What? Does this sound like the story of a prospering man? So now Joseph is in prison after being falsely accused of rape because he was enslaved after being sold by his brother who wanted to kill him and faked his death. And the Lord is with Joseph, and he's making him prosper. And this flies in the face of anyone who teaches, preaches, or claims that God's favor looks like health, wealth, and good fortune, doesn't it? He's had God's favor on his life from the beginning, and yet here he is in the worst-case scenario, being falsely accused. Where's God? What do you mean you have God's favor? Why do we think it has to look like worldly or earthly success? Why do we think it has to look like health and wealth? in this life, when the greater or bigger picture is eternity. And so what is God doing? He's preparing him for something greater. He's doing something more that transcends this life, obviously, because he's not being rewarded right now. He's going through hell. But wait, there's more. It's here in prison that Joseph connects with Pharaoh's cupbearer and his chief baker. And they're in prison, and because of God's favor, they're under Joseph's charge. And so each of them have a dream that needs to be interpreted, and this is this one of Joseph's strengths, obviously. So he explains what these dreams mean accurately, and they come to pass. However, what Joseph does when he interprets the cupbearer's dream, he says, please, don't forget about me. When you go before Pharaoh, tell him all about me. Help me get out of this God-forsaken place. And so what happens? The cupbearer forgets all about him for two years. Not two weeks, not two months. But for two years, the cupbearer forgets all about this guy who gave him this premonition of freedom. I thought the Lord was with Joseph. How can he allow these things to happen to his people? See, what happens and what we have to realize is that God's plan doesn't look like our plan sometimes, does it? God loves us enough to allow the worst if it means it'll bring out the best. And so if we have to go through hell, if that's what it's going to take for us to become the people that we're supposed to be, then God loves us enough to allow that, to even enforce or appoint that to happen. And we sell a Christianity that says, hey, you know, if you come to the church, if you choose Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. Everything will be restored to you. Your life will be rainbows and butterflies. But the scriptures clearly say that the rain falls on the unjust and the just the same. That the only difference we have is Jesus. 
The only thing we possess that the world doesn't is hope. And so when everything starts falling down around us, when the world feels like it's caving in, we have Jesus. We have a God who has overcome the grave. We have a promise of eternity with him. We've been given far more than the riches of this life. And so if all we do is spend all our time trying to pursue these things, trying to acquire these things, and we miss the work that Jesus is doing in our lives, then the reward that will, the only reward that we'll ever get is those things. We'll miss the greater one. The Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph remained forgotten for two years, and both were equally true. And so, just like us, even when we feel like the Lord might have forgotten us, even when we feel like, you know, God is not present, we don't see him working or moving, he is. Because when nothing's happening, something's happening. And that's what I said at the beginning. There is no such thing as ordinary when you walk with God. We are temples of the living God. I mean, think about that for a second. I don't even think we can wrap our minds around the value and the privilege of that. But, but what happened back before this, you know, before Christ, was that the, the people of God, the only way to experience him was through the priests and through their obedience to the law. They had to go once a year and, and, and make an offering, and then the priest would go to God for them. And what Jesus did is, is he tore that whole thing down. And he said, I'm your high priest now. And guess what? God's going to live in you. And so you have the privilege of walking with me and being with me all day, every day. And what do we do? We forget about that most of the time. We live according to the flesh and we don't walk in the spirit. We indulge the flesh. We maximize our pleasure and try to minimize our pain. We seek instant gratification and comfort and those become our gods. And we miss the process that God has us in. We forget that God has something greater, that every single one of us has a purpose and a calling in the kingdom. But we settle and we look no different from the world sometimes. We just blend in. And what God has said, no, I want more for you. The world is falling apart. Things are only getting worse. When do we decide, you know what? I'm gonna abandon this thing. It's shown you no loyalty. Only God has. We don't need to go down with this ship. We need to rise up with our captain. So eventually what happens is Pharaoh has this dream that nobody can interpret. And so this cupbearer finally remembers Joseph and says, aha, I know a guy. And he brings him before Pharaoh. And, and Joseph not only interprets the dream, but because of God's favor, this is the turning point in Joseph's story now, Pharaoh makes him second in command of all of Egypt. Can you imagine you're sitting in your prison cell and some guy that forgot about you two years prior, who you helped out, comes and says, hey, we need to talk to you. 
okay. They clean him up, they put fresh garments on him, and they put him in front of Pharaoh. And he not only tells Pharaoh what these dreams are about, that, that Egypt is going to go into famine after they flourish for seven years, they're going to go into famine and struggle and suffer for seven years. And, and so Pharaoh's like, wow, we need, some, we need to be prepared for this. We need to be proactive. Who can I have do this? And they're like, well, here he is. This dude can do it. And so now you're second in command of all of Egypt. It almost feels fake. But that's what God does. He takes nobodies and makes them somebodies. He uses fools to confound the wise, the weak to shame the strong. You know, and I think about the processes, and I'm learning this more and more in my own life. You know, and that's the good thing, is that we never arrive. We're in this process from the moment we meet Christ until the moment he takes us home. And so our job is just to be present in these sufferings, to wait in these times of these seasons with him, to surrender to him, to allow him to do what he is or will do in all of our lives. I've been thinking about this more and more, obviously, lately with Pastor Brian and the situation that he's in and seeing him in the condition he's in. It's, it's, It's a lot. Right? And I can't imagine what he's going through. We talk about it every day. Like, I can't imagine being in that situation, unable to move, but completely aware. And then I think, you know, I see these messages like, you know, closer to Jesus than ever. And I'm like, man, God, you're good. Only God can do that. When I was there visiting him, he, he uh, spelt out on the board, it said, I may be soft on the outside, but I'm tough on the inside. (laughs) Of course, if you know Brian, that's not true. (laughs) He's never been known for his toughness, but that's the thing. Like what God's doing in this season is toughening him up for whatever's to come. And I just think about this, how amazing this is, how he's moving all of us through this as we rally around Brian, but also responsibilities and people stepping up. And I think about all the people praying and reaching out. And I just think, what is he going to do? And Brian, what is he going to do as far as, you know, his growth? Who is he going to be on the other side of this? Think of all the sermons and the illustrations. I want, I want to read the book. And in doing that, he's revealing things in me. He's showing me my weaknesses. He's showing me the places where I need to rely on him and others. And it's good. It keeps me in a position of humility and brokenness and dependence. And that's what we need, right? It's when we think, I got this, that we're in danger. And so this is the process. This is what God does. This is how he works in the waiting. You know what? This didn't happen overnight with Joseph. Joseph was 17, as I said at the beginning of the story, and he's now 30 years old, standing before Pharaoh, and it's not just been time, but it's been a long, difficult road. But you know what? No matter how long it takes, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how far you go, no matter how much you mess up, God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful, and he does what he says he's going to do. And so the question remains, why did Joseph have to wait so long? Why? We're going to delve into that more 
a little more next week, but, but I submit this to you. In our waiting for God, God is waiting for us to see if we're really waiting for him or just wanting things or stuff from him. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a common problem we have. And I've seen this happen time and time again, and it's heartbreaking. Do we really want God or do we want his stuff? I've seen so many people come through the church and over the last you know, 25, 26 years of Christianity, and I've been guilty of this too, where, where we run to God because he's the restorer, he's the healer, he's the reconciler. Right? We want his grace, we want his mercy, we want his forgiveness, we want all the blessings and the riches of the kingdom. But what ends up happening is when he starts to restore us, when we start to see some stability in our lives, maybe that relationship's restored or a new one comes along because, you know, that's what we need. We start to kind of back away from God because we're satisfied with those small things. We're satisfied with just a little bit of him. And God's got way, way more. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ever hoped or imagined. Sure, I can restore this. Sure, I can give you that. But you know what? I have a greater calling. I have a greater purpose. I can do immeasurably more, says the Lord. And we're satisfied with the crumbs of this world. He confirms our motive while we go for this. And then he corrects and develops it. And for some of us, it takes a lot longer than others. See, he not only developed Joseph in this waiting process, process as we read, but he was there with him in the waiting. And what God does through his waiting, as he goes on to not just save Joseph. See, that's what it is, is we get so narrow-minded and so self-centered that we think, oh, well, what I'm going through is because God's going to develop me and he's going to make me great or he's going to do good things in my life. But it's not about us. No, God wants to do good things through your life. You've already got your reward. And so what God wants to do and what he does with Joseph is he goes on to save hundreds of thousands of people who would have otherwise died. He gives him purpose. He gives him a family. And he brings his plan to fruition for the faithful waiting of Joseph. Joseph doesn't at 17 have this dream and then storm up to the castle, right? Come on, king, let me in. I'm here for my job. I love in chapter 41 when, when we see Joseph has these two boys, right? And it's his first son, he names him Manasseh, which means to forget. That's what it means in Hebrew. And he says, God has made me forget my trouble. That's what, that's what Joseph said. In other words, he's on the other side of this thing now. And instead of focusing so much on what was and what happened and the poor me and the woe is me, you have no idea what I've been through. Oh, yeah, well, you should do what I've been through. Anybody get caught in those conversations? Mm. Who cares? How about what God's doing? How about what God's going to do? How about we focus on that? How about we say, thank God for rescuing me from hell? We wear our past like a badge of honor sometimes, and there's nothing honorable about it. Let's put that aside. Let's learn from it and keep it in the rear view, church. And let's just remember this. 
God can make us forget our troubles. He can bring us to a greater place. He names his second son Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he says, God has made me fruitful, and I love this part of it, in the land of my affliction. He made me fruitful here in the place that I suffered. He changed my life here in the place where everything went wrong. A lot of times we think, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to get away from here. I need to start over. I need to go to a new church. I need to go to a new town. I need to move down south. I need to go to the west coast. Hey, I'm going to go to Maine. Hey, I'm going to go here. Right? Got all these great ideas. We're going to run from our problems. We're going to move away. And what God does, and, and just some advice on that, no matter where you go, there you are, right? But what God does is he takes us right where we're at, and he lets people watch the process. He lets people say, whoa, what happened to that dude? Right? This guy was a fool. Look at what he does now. This guy was a drug addict. Look at what he does now. Hey, that guy went to prison. Look at what he does now. I went to school with that guy. He was an idiot. These are just some of the things I've heard. <laughs> but that's what God does. He keeps you right where you're at. I can remember there was a part of my life I was getting ready to leave Teen Challenge, and I was like, I think I'm going to go down to Maryland and be with my annoying brother. And I had a place there, and I had a place to start, and I was like, it's away from all of this hurt and past, the wake of my past. And, and you know, God just clearly said to me, it was like, get up, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And man, I'm glad I listened. I think a lot of times we, we spend so much time focusing on our struggles that we forget how God uses them to perfect us and achieve greater things than just transform and grow us personally. And so I'm going to jump to the end of this story in Genesis now. And Joseph's brothers, what happens is they end up in Egypt looking for food when the famine hits. This is 20 years later now, 13 years to get to before Pharaoh, seven years of, of you know, health and wealth in, in Egypt, and then all of a sudden famine strikes, and there's seven years now, and so what happens is his brothers come looking for food, and they end up bowing before him just like the dream had predicted, and I'm sure at this moment when they finally found out it was their brother Joseph that they threw in a hole, they were probably a little humbled that they allowed these dreams to provoke them. The other thing, too, as I was reading this and thinking about this, is I'm sure Joseph felt a certain way, too. Maybe as a 17-year-old boy, he was a little zealous to share the premonitions with them, and he had no idea the series of events that were about to take place from that point on in his life. But either way, everyone comes to see the sovereignty of God. It's not like Joseph says, ha, ha, look what I did. All the boys go, wow, you were right. No, what it is is they can see, like, how could they have orchestrated this? Do you think for one moment when the boys, his brothers, were going to kill him, that God went, oh, no, they're going to kill him. It's going to ruin my plan. Not for a second. Not for a second. God had bigger plans and more work to do. And that's what God does with us. Right? He, God just, he took control of the situation. He used this man and everything that happened to him along the way as part of the process. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. One of those power verses. Right? Joseph's father, Jacob, has died. 
right? His brothers are nervous again as they come back into the land after burying him. And they're worried with their father gone. Is Joseph going to deal with us more harshly now that dad's not here as a buffer? And so they even forge a letter and, and, and they, you know, Joseph is in tears and he, and he just is like, man, it's not about me. Am I God? Who am I to punish you? He looks at them as they bow before him once more and he says this. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This isn't about you. This was never about you bowing before me. That was just a small premonition of a bigger picture. And you were so hung up because we're so self-centered and short-sighted that we think it's just about, I'm never going to bow before my brother. And they're still worried about if he's going to treat them harshly. And he's saying, no, this is a greater thing that God is doing. This is why he chose Joseph, because Joseph had the heart for the job. And we need to have the heart for the job. We need to learn to wait like Joseph. We need to stop seeing our struggles and penalties as setbacks. God allows, uses, and even ordains hardship for purposes far greater than the things we pursue and desire. God is intentional. He is deliberate. He is precise. And he knows what he is doing. Our job is simply to keep the faith, to wait on him, and to know that he is God and he is good. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I just want you to just be with me for a moment here and just hear me out. See, there's a, one of the reasons that a lot of people never see God working in their lives, right? Some of you might be saying that, well, I've never seen God do much, or why do I not feel like God is working or using me? It's because we never hang in long enough for God to show his power. We take our will back. We try to control things instead of waiting. Wait. Hang in. Allow God to show his power and work in your life. We live in this drive-through society. It's a microwave society, but we serve a crockpot God, church. Be still, as the psalmist wrote. Allow God to be God. Allow him to start the work in your life that he has ordained and called you to. Some of you are in a season of waiting right now. Most of us are probably. Maybe you're not handling it well. Maybe you're allowing fear, anxiety, and your need to control or acquire a certain outcome to steal your ability to wait like Joseph. And you're missing the blessing. You're missing the greatest part of the journey is the walk with him. It's the, it's the presence of God in your life as you struggle and as you go through this, crying out to him. I sat in that chair last night before I went home, and I just sat here looking at the cross, and I just remembered that I, could, I was, should be dead. There was a moment in my life where I had lost all hope, where I just all I cared about was a roof and a bed. I had lost that. And I start to think, tomorrow I'm going to stand up there, God. I'm going to tell people about you. I'm going to tell people how good you are. And it's all because of the, your grace in my life. It's all because of your work in my life. Not because I'm good. Not because I'm deserving. But because, God, you're good. I read this to Pastor Brian. And this is his favorite psalm. 
In verse 14, Psalm 27, it says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You need to surrender these things today and allow God to do his work in and through you, church. Just like Joseph, he's in the waiting. And so I challenge you, come and give it to God. Come worship the king. Remember that he's in the waiting and don't leave him behind. Just throw yourself at the mercy of our king, church. Amen.